0: Welcome to Public Servant's announcement. Um, This is the first episode of season three. So I'd like to first just thank everybody for coming back after our little hiatus between the seasons. But even more than that, I'd like to thank you for continuing to listen. That makes this episode number 41, which means I've had probably close to 45 guests, if I'm doing my math correctly. And that's just the ones you have heard so far. But this guest is a very um, special guest, a very entertaining guest, at least from what I know of him personally. Um, I couldn't start the season with someone I didn't know because you want to make sure the first episode is actually entertaining. Um, And so this is a perfect guest for me to have for this first episode back. And just I want to give you a lot of information about him, but I also want him to be able to introduce himself. So I'm just going to say, welcome to the show, Mr. Devin Garrity.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. I'm really excited that I get to kick off a season, too.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's exciting. Um, how, how, how have you been?
1: I have been well. I've been well. I, it was a, uh, I'm ba- I've bounced back from 2020, mm-hmm. and I'm very at peace with where things are after a while which is nice
0: That's that's good i'm not sure a lot of people can say they bounced back from 2020 i think 2020 took a lot of people out not even physically i mean it just definitely like took the
1: legs out from under me i'll tell you that right now so to be back on my feet and and really confidently striding through things again it, it feels really good
0: that's good stride was actually my word for 2020 yeah <laughs> yeah um stride was actually my word for 2020 it's not what happened but that was my word at the beginning um we reevaluated in 2021 <laughs> um so obviously my listeners the few of us that there are growing though thankfully but um my listeners know that this is a space where I talk to public servants um you I I know you as Mr. Garrity because we've worked together as teachers, twice actually, um, and then coaches. But I've seen um, I've seen a lot of public servants now, and every time I bring one on, and I think this is what they do as a public service. There's usually like twenty other things that they do. So outside of education, outside of coaching, what else do you do that makes you a public servant?
1: I would say that I'm a public servant because I am completely committed to the idea of everyone receiving the best version of me, no matter what color you are, how much money you have. And I think that that's the truest embodiment of being a public servant is knowing that you benefited from the system because I had a great high school and and, and elementary and middle education in Maine where I grew up. And I was—I had the best, the number one physics teacher in the entire nation was at my high school in the middle of nowhere, Maine. And that's the type of education I was given. And that's what everyone deserves to be given when it's been given to you by the system. So as often as it takes away, I feel like there are times when it gives back and I am an example of that. So outside of coaching and teaching, I coach and teach my students and athletes in life. I act as a mentor to them and a lot of them because they have questions that they know I'll answer truthfully. And I give it to them straightforward and present both positives and negatives and allow them to make the choice. So I would say I do what I do to get paid without getting paid because it's the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That I mean, that is what makes you a really special, a really gifted, a really good educator. Is that it's it's not just a job for you, it's a calling for sure. That that's a that's probably the best answer I've ever heard to that question. (laughs) Um okay, so what's the weirdest question a student has ever asked you?
1: Ooh. I would have to go with, well, obviously, so I have a, for those of you who don't know what I look like, I have a whole bunch of tattoos. Like I have, uh, from right now I have the back of my skull all the way down to the tops of my toes. I'm about, I don't know, 60% covered. So I get a million tattoo questions all the time. Um, I think, I think the one is like, the the most annoying question is always, coach, which tattoo hurt the worst? I'm always like, dude, like you see it on the back of my hand, man. There's no skin there. That one hurt. Oh, but um, they'll ask me questions about tattoos in in places. Like, hey, coach, what happens if you get a tattoo here? I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> turn 18. And then ask me that kind of question. Cause you know, they're not topics you really want to breach, but it's the natural curiosity for a lot of people mm-hmm. who see someone with a lot of tattoos. I mean, I don't have the experience, thankfully, that's that's a little too hardcore for me, but the last questions like that, um, I think a lot of the, the questions I get aren't necessarily crazy because I filter the people I interact with before I allow that level of relationship to form. Cause you know, you'll get the wild kids in the hallway. who will just like yell out questions and they don't even know you. Um, But the questions I get aren't crazy. They're just crazy difficult Mm -hmm. because there's scenarios that you and I as established grown people have a difficult time dealing with, let alone being 16, you know? Yeah. So I would say, I would say, coach, what should I do is the craziest because I'm not the one deciding who you're going to be. It's you deciding it with what you do. So I can't, and then that's something that I taught that was hard for me at the beginning of my career was, do I give them advice or do I tell them what to do? And if it goes wrong, then I told them to do that. Mm -hmm. I got away from that very quickly. And what should I do? Here's option A, here's option B from my perspective. This is what you could do instead of what should I do? Because what should I, hey, what should I do? Oh man, that's crazy. You have a whole life of knowledge outside of like the bit of you that you've given me.
0: Right. Yeah, my favorite. And I'm glad you gave option A option because that's always been my favorite response to what should I do questions. Just, well, what are your options? Like my options in that situation may not be the options you have. So I don't I don't even want to even think about options that may not be options. What are your options? What have you thought about? What have you tried already that? I mean, yeah. And for people who aren't educators, when you build relationships with kids, you get that question at least once a week. And that's being very conservative. All the time. And it it's always, even if it's not realistically life or death, in their head, it's definitely life or death. And so it's the utmost seriousness. And so the most ridiculous questions to us, we have to respond in a very serious way really? just to maintain that level of respect for them and their and their thinking and their understanding of the world right now.
1: And I think another important part of it, too, is is I make this very clear to every, every kid I interact with. Like, you have to make mistakes in order to learn. But the key is, is not making the big mistakes. Yeah. They get the authorities involved. They get another person pregnant and you start another life. Like, don't make those big mistakes, but make a whole bunch of little mistakes so you can learn. And I know that... person a and person b's relationship is going to end terribly but i see them in that phase where they're just living that blissful beginning of a relationship high school love life and they ask for advice and i know that they have to crash from it because Mm -hmm. that's what forges who you are is 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 those initial heartbreaks within the romantic scene you know it's part of every person's life so yes it's a fine line because it's like yeah not going to force you away and like protect you from it because you have to live it and people let me live it so Mm -hmm. it's a it's it's a very delicate game and and when you don't deal like I'm around 3,000 kids every single day which every single one of them everything they do is the first time so everything's so charged and electric and, and 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 emotional right So for people who aren't around that all the time, they don't understand like how powerful that drive of it being the first of something is to these kids. Mm -hmm. And you have to let them live that energy level. That's just that's what they are. They're just buzzing along at that red line all the time. Let
0: them figure it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you told us you're from Maine. How did you end up in Texas?
1: All right. So we bounced around a whole bunch. Ready? We go Maine, Germany, Connecticut. Texas. Okay, so I went and played soccer over in Europe. I came back. I finished my degree in Connecticut at the University of Hartford, and I was a signature away from becoming a police officer because I graduated and I'd gone to i I've gone two hundred miles an hour on a motorcycle on the autobahn, yeah. so pretty much as fast as you can go on land without like being like deadly. Like two hundred fifty on a motorcycle—that's like a little much, right? And I knew the only way I was gonna go faster was in a plane. So I wanted to become a fighter pilot in the Navy. So I went through, I aced the tests, the physical tests, the, the written tests. And I took the Navy aeronautical exam. It was the hardest test in the military. And I passed. And I came time to go to the recruiter and talk to them further. And they're like, oh, we see you had asthma in your in your childhood. And I was like, yeah, they're like, yeah, we can't have you as a pilot. I was like, dude, I just went through all of this all of this to be a jet fighter pilot. You won't let me do it. Okay, whatever. So then I was thinking, what can I do to get paid to ride my motorcycle? And I was like, stuntman, policeman. I was like, Ooh, I could also ride a horse if I were a policeman too. So I get to ride my motorcycle and ride my horse. So I'm like, deal, dude, this is awesome. And I went all the way through, did all my tests. I did my interviews. It came time to sign on and go to Academy and there was a whole bunch of racial tension and and violence between police and locals in Hartford. And police and locals died as a result. And I was like, dang, I like riding my motorcycle, but not this much. And I was still in the north, and the north is freezing cold. So it was either Texas or Florida. Those were the two locations that made the most sense for teaching in terms of salary, cost of living, being warm. Um, and my mom was from Texas. And I'd visited Texas before. I really liked it. So I said, you know what? Screw it. Got down, stayed with a family friend, shot my resume everywhere across Texas, and got picked up by Winfrey Academy in Grand Prairie, Texas.
0: Okay. Okay. Wait. So a lot of people like being a police officer, and there's a lot of people who have been interested. I've looked at it once or twice. I filled out an application. Everyone in my family has pretty much told me absolutely not. So yeah. I won't be a police officer. But my reasoning was not because I want to ride motorcycles and horses. How, how is that like, oh, I should probably be a police officer because I want to ride motorcycles? How do you connect that logic?
1: I, that's a superficial reason why. <laughs> the, real, the real reason is the same reason I'm teaching, is that if you enter a situation with me, I am going to show you respect as long as respect is shown back to me. I'm never Mm -hmm. going to dip down. I'm not going to assume anything about you based on how you look or the way you speak or what you do. And I feel like I'm very fortunate in that regard that I don't have any built-in biases. I wasn't raised in a family that taught me, you know, like you're wrong or you're bad because you look a certain way. (laughs) And I believe that as a police officer, I would have carried my same mentality as I do a teaching of my job is to help you. My job as a police officer would have been to help you, to keep you safe and help you, not to attempt to incite or promote violence as a means of solving a problem. And I'm very very brave and I'm very calm in aggressive situations between two people, because I know that words can diffuse a situation and that there's always a root cause to every problem that's probably being ignored. That's creating all this tension and all this animosity. And I love the idea of being able to help people while I'm putting in time to become a detective and then solve problems and solve mysteries. Because you know, I've, as an English major, I spent my, I spent a large portion of my career reading all these massive adventures and, and, and epics of, of heroes and people doing good and people doing bad and, and understanding the human psyche through words. So when you do that and you read all these classics, you encounter the way that people think and act in a lot of different scenarios. So you're much more prepared when it happens. Now, are you fully prepared? No way. You never yeah. can be. But, those so like for me right now I build stuff and I kick a soccer ball like that's the why the why I tell you why I love soccer like I love teaching so for a police officer it would be I get to connect with these people I help benefit them you know I go into an underserved community and they see a white man speaking Spanish to minorities and interacting with people of all melanin contents the exact same and they see a white man being positive instead of an authoritarian white man being negative, being aggressive, being harassing. Like, I think it's really important. You know, that's been a driving factor of me working in the schools I've worked at my career too, is, is showing you like the first interaction that you have with a white man shouldn't be in a scenario where you could be in trouble. Like right. it should be someone to help you. So surface, I really like horses and I really like motorcycles. <laughs> But like deeper level, I can be a positive racial example of a young man who looks like he wouldn't in a lot of scenarios interact with people and truly engage with them and make their lives better as a result.
0: Okay, so what is the biggest difference between Maine where you grew up and Texas where you're in an authoritarian position over a bunch of kids watching Good them
1: excellent question so where i grew up we were so we had class a b c and d what class a was like 6a in terms of size so i went to a 5a size school quotation marks around you can't see them quotation marks um and that had a graduating class of 128 right because the entire state only has 1.4 million people so for me it was very isolated you know, I had acres and acres and acres of land around my house growing up. Um, it was very uh, non-racially diverse. We had um two uh kids in our school who had uh, who are half black, half white. So we had two mixed kids in our school. Um, and we had a couple of Native American um students, and we had a couple of Asian students. and you know, we get foreign exchanges, but the foreign exchange students were like, german or french so you know it's not like they're mixing in like a little bit of spice you know right so for me i learned that you can't discriminate the potential of someone based on how much money they have or what class they're in because when everyone is the same color it often comes down to hey who's got nicer stuff who has more money mm-hmm. And some of the poorest kids in our school were the most dedicated brilliant students and who left backwoods, middle and nowhere Maine to become engineers and, and doctors like literally engineers and doctors and their dads I don't know I don't even know what they did had driven a tow truck or something you know so they they left. So for me, I saw the power of understanding a system and having people there to guide you through a system of go to high school grab take your tests go to college get a degree and start working in a field find someone else who's along that same path and then set your kids up beyond that right so for me the big difference was scale so I went from a high school of 550 kids to when I first started teaching at Lancaster what do we have like 2,000 kids yeah so right around right, 2000 right kids. above.
0: Yeah.
1: And I go from being in a, a being in a place where teachers have been there since the 70s to we have 53 new teachers every year. <laughs> and understanding that that constant turnover, these new faces. Why do I invest in you, coach? You're just another new face. Who's going to be the next coach? Who's going to be the next coach? And that inability and kind of not. Unwillingness, but like reservation, to grasp any moral lessons I was trying to teach. Because you know, yeah, we were young. I was twenty three, teaching these eighteen year olds. But I tried so hard to be that positive guiding force that I received from my teachers. And luckily, it was the beginning of my career where all the energy levels just spiked up all the time, so I could do it. I could maintain it. But it wasn't accepted because teachers aren't viewed the same as they were where i'm from
2: because yeah.
1: being in a small town everyone like three three me and my two brothers we all had the same teachers for every single subject our entire lives you know so like by the time that you get a third kid going through like you would never question mrs Parrington's first grade advice never dude she's brought all of us up and they've all we've all been great kids and great students like You wouldn't do it whereas now you know i mean this is education in general but the flip script of like why why are you doing this this way like no no um and i also think no that's that has to do with education in general as opposed to just me specifically so i'll leave it at that i'll leave it at that there
0: okay and you can get as general or specific as you want to um just because but Okay, so you mentioned we started working together at Lancaster. I know that for me was my, like, I call it my second two point, year 2.5, because <laughs> I did a half year and then a full year, and then I went to Lancaster. Yeah. Um, but I went to Lancaster, leaving a big school district, because I was basically told at your age, because I started teaching at 20, at your age, it's going to be really hard for you to move up because... First, you're really young. And then second, this is a really big district. If you go to a smaller district, you'll be able to move up a lot faster. Mm -hmm. Um, And quite frankly, I didn't even know what move up meant. I didn't want to be a principal. I didn't want to be a superintendent. I just didn't want to be like the low man on the totem pole. And Mm -hmm. all of my coworkers at the school I was started at, um, Lamar High School, by the way, in um, Arlington, I, I mean, I think the next youngest English teacher at the time was 43 and I was 20. We were really young. I mean, literally older than my parents. Um, (laughs) And so, I mean, I found something to do with them. Like I hung out with them a little bit, but I was like, I had, I think five of them had kids older, it was eight of us. Five of them had kids significantly older than me. Um, One of them had a grandchild that was my roommate in college. Um, Like literally my freshman year, their grandson was my roommate in college. (laughs) Um, So that shows the difference. And then I had the youngest one, the 43-year-old, was in her second year teaching during my first year teaching, and she had come from being in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. and so she was brand new like me we were supposed to do all these things we were working together on a lot of things but at the same time her son is my age so no one really respected me on like a peer level because I was literally half as old as they were yep so I left and went to Lancaster where the respect was way different um there were still older teachers, but not quite as old. My entire team was younger than the second youngest person on the team at Lamar. And then, but for the most part, we just got along really well. Yeah. But it was a major culture shock for me. I am like, I went to three different magnet schools growing up where we were in incred- like my, actually the last two episodes of season two, I talked to, my counselor from elementary school, and then my principal from elementary school. So we were mostly white, and then we became mostly Hispanic in my elementary school. My middle school and high schools were both like 30-30-30 schools, so incredibly diverse. Then I got to Lamar. It's the exact same. It's a 30-30-30 school, 30% white, 30% black, 30% Hispanic, 10% other. And then I get to Lancaster, where it's 95% black. Yep. And I was like, whoa, it is a lot of, I can't, it's, I'm gonna be politically correct. It's a lot of black people here. Um, and it's not just the kids, it's the kids, it's the staff, it's the administrative staff. I literally believe every single person on our administrative staff that year was black. Yeah. And I had never seen that many black people in charge of anything, let alone that many black kids and that many black adults with degrees. Um, And I come from a pretty well-educated family. I have, I think, two doctors in my family, like PhD, not MD, doctors in my family, several master degrees, multiple educators, like my family's uh, work in the education system goes back four generations. So I'm not new to education or new to even Black excellence in education. But seeing a staff of 70 percent African-American, 90 percent African-American students, you know, everyone in the top 10 is African-American. The principal, the associate principal, all five APs, they're all black. All of their secretaries are black. The choir director, the band director, the athletic director, everybody is black. Yeah. And and it's a school with success. Mm-hmm. And not just athletic success. Yes, we have athletic success. Like literally one of the most successful track programs in the history of the nation. Yep. And one of the most successful football programs. And one of the most successful, I think my, I say my first year, my only year at Lancaster. I think that was the first year ever in any of my education as a student or teacher, the only year, where every sport made the playoffs. Yeah. And basketball day. made it to yep. state. Football was like the round before state. And it was just an expectation because the year before, everybody made it to state. Mm -hmm. And so it was literal Black excellence. The UIL choir department, the UIL band, they sweepstakes at UIL. It was no thing for us to be great. So for me, it was a culture shock as a Black man with a Black excellent family. What was that like for you as a young white man new to Texas?
1: It, It was probably the best life education teaching is teaching in general in texas has been the best life education i ever could have had i had a taste of it when i was teaching up in connecticut and hartford because i taught all puerto rican kids in my school i taught well i taught in east hartford and the school i taught at was all puerto rican kids and then some black kids mixed in but like super low income like they, they would call them hood they would call themselves hood right um
0: let's pause right there because i've mm-hmm. never been to connect i've been through connecticut I've never been and I don't know anybody now other than you that has mm-hmm. been and definitely that has lived there. My assumption was always that Connecticut was super white.
1: Is... If, you, if you leave the cities, uh-huh. it's all white, upper middle class, golden retrievers running around on a nice high, like stripe cut lawn. You go into the cities like Yale University is in New Haven, mm-hmm. Connecticut. You leave campus and they call it gun wave in New Haven, you know, because you're right near New York City. So you have a lot of immigrants coming in. You have a lot of Dominicans and you have a lot of Puerto Ricans. Not so much, you have Mexicans, not a ton, um, but you have a lot of immigrant families that come in and migrate out from New York City. Mm-hmm. And as a result, when you have low, when you have high minority populations and in low income urban areas, there's, you know, unfortunately, there's a whole bunch of trouble surrounding it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have very diverse and ethnic cities and very non-diverse and very monoracial suburbs and in the suburbs there's unreal money like teaching in east hartford was like i think i made like thirty-six thousand that year if i taught in avon which is right near there but it's across a bridge and up a hill into the countryside i would have been making like 60 and that's just because it's East Hartford versus Avon. The money's there, right? So a lot of the issues are there. It's just a smaller scale, you know, small state. Connecticut, for, for those of you who don't know Connecticut, if you take the outline of the map and you put it on Texas, it's the size of Houston and Houston suburbs. That's how big the state of Connecticut is. That's how big, Well, that's how big Houston is. Um, so I had a bit of it there. Which really, because at that point, I spoke French and German fluently, as well as English. So I was learning my Spanish, which was super dope, because I was like, wow, they see me learning, they hear me trying to speak their language the right way, which was, and I I mean, I spoke it basically, because I spoke French, so learning Spanish came really fast. But they saw me authentically engage with them. And they started to bring me food. They used to bring me food. Their moms would cook and they bring me food to school, so I got to see what empanadas were. I got to try their their version of a torta is like what they are here in Mexico, you know, where it's like like a burger kind of sandwich. So like I got to try all these different foods. And I was like, "Damn, dude, you're <laughs> like you're so poor and you're bringing me food, and like meanwhile I'm broke as broke as crap because I'm I'm a teacher and I'm." paying to live in Connecticut but I'm like dude you really brought me food and that was the way that they wanted to connect with me because like oh mister you got to try this you got to try this so I was like all right deal so you know we we exchanged there was a there was a genuine exchange they these were middle schoolers I was working with you know and these that, those are the kids that are right on the border of doing like real bad stuff when you're like 11 12 13 and I was someone that made them happy and I saw how powerful it was that kids walked in. I was a I was working in a biology classroom. And that the kids walked into biology and they smiled. And they walk out in that hallway and they frowned. But when they walked in, they smiled because I smiled at them. So for me, what was important, and like during that year, you know, everyone called me Huero. Güero is what you call white people, What Hispanic people and Spanish people call white people. So everyone called me Wero, which, you know, they think is funny. Like, it's always a name that's funny to people. But then once I started speaking Spanish back to them, you know, Wero became something special. Because like, holy shit, Guero is talking to us in our language. So I realized how important it was to not just linguistically, but to culturally connect. Because that's everything to them. That's what they go home to. That's what they surround themselves with. The only time they don't is when they're wearing a maroon t-shirt and khaki pants and they're inside this building after they go through metal detectors. Like what? Of course they want to be proud of who they are, right? So this led me to one of the most awakening realizations I ever had in my entire life at Lancaster because I had only been in an environment where it was all white. So I had seen the extremes of all white country culture, which was the car hat club. Like we had these dudes up there, right, where they would wear car hat jackets and they had the car hat pants on. They're wearing the Chippewa boots. And I'll tell you what, dude, they drove their tractors to school every day. I I'll tell you, they pack outside in the field on the side there and they just shoot the breeze and talk about their car hats, right? Because that was what everyone had a bit of. But like that was the epitome of it. I drive my tractor. I I I drink beers and listen to country music. You know, it's like they're they're like the the excess of white country culture, and I never understood that because that's just all I lived. And when you came to Lancaster, and this is something that I think you'll be able to speak to, is when you're in an environment where everyone looks the same the way that you try to separate a lot of people try to separate themselves from the group is to be the utmost example of the stereotype of what makes them them so for me what i saw was and this was uh rich homie Quan time right that was that was our time at lancaster was rich homie Quan era And you see the kids just trying to be, literally trying to be him in the hallway, speak the way he does, talk to females the way he does, dress the way he does, disrespect the way he does, because he was the culture of the kids who went to our school, who, a lot of them had tough lives, but they weren't living, a lot of them weren't living like South Dallas lives. Right. They're living suburb lives that they wanted to feel was like South Dallas lives. right? So they went to the extreme with the way they dressed, the way they talked and the way they acted. And like, that made me realize, I was like, man, okay. Cause for me, it was much different because I interact being soccer coach there. I interacted with the purely Hispanic population with a couple of black kids mixed in. Mm-hmm. And amongst the hispanic population small as it was they separated themselves by being the most hispanic i listen to only corridos you know i i live on a rancho right now like you want to come over dude we'll we'll drive four wheelers around and like drink modelos and stuff and it's like like going to the extreme of that culture there too like or like refusing to speak english when you know they spoke english stuff like that where it's like no I don't have to do that, dude. I'm more Mexican than you. I don't have to do that, dude. I'm more Black than you. And for me, presenting myself as authentically myself amidst all of this was very important. Because I'm not Black. I'm not Mexican. I'm not anything else. But I can learn. I can see what matters to you. And when you you develop a relationship with a kid and you're like, blah 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 like why why are you acting like this like you're smart dude like separate yourself by being smart not by knowing all the answers and then saying something slick every time because like that makes you think like that's what you see other kids doing and you want to surpass them so you look cooler you know Mm -hmm. so to look cool you have to be the most and when you're all the same color mostly the same color you have to separate yourself again and you do so with extremes. That was my learning experience that I took away from my first year at Lancaster. You know,
0: Lancaster, Lancaster taught me the exact same thing. Like that was, and I remember calling home, not calling home. I'm, I'm literally from Garland. So I'm from like (laughs) 20 minutes North of Lancaster, but I remember calling my sister and being like, let me tell you about the craziest thing i've ever heard today um and it was just this time where i had ap students that year and in the ap class i had a kid who was in avid which for those of you who aren't in education avid students have to take i think the number is two ap classes in order to maintain avid status doesn't actually matter whether they are capable of taking those classes this student was plenty capable. I did not know that at first, um, but they came with a ton of the paperwork, the 504, the IAP, the BIP, all of it. And so they did everything they could to kind of uphold that status because that is what separated them in the AP culture and in the AVID culture was that they weren't smart. Mm-hmm. They, they separated themselves because they were the average student in the AP class. And so it was their time to shine versus just being one of the other smart kids. And one day we took a quiz and it was like a star prep course, like a star prep test. And it wasn't a benchmark, it was just like one of the random weekly ones they forced us to take that I hated. But they took it and they got every answer wrong. But they picked the worst answer on every single one. Like, not like they were like, you, like the obviously
1: you, wrong one, right? Yeah. Like if yeah. you're not
0: in the star testing system and you're not an educator, you don't know that there's two answers. One is the right answer. One is a really good answer. And then there's two answers that clearly aren't right. One is like, mm, this could be right, but this word makes it clearly wrong. And then this last one, like it's way wrong. It's clearly wrong. Why would you even pick this unless you clearly didn't understand anything and you're guessing?
2: Mm -hmm. And they
0: pick that answer, that fourth option every time. And so I pulled them aside. I was like, Hey, the only way you get this answer, the wrong, the completely wrong answer on all 50 questions is if you know the right answer. And they were like, no, I don't know the right answer. I just, I just didn't know. So you're telling me I got a zero. Yeah. But on the start test, getting a zero is pretty equivalent to getting an a yeah like that yeah, lets me know you know the right answer every time so you're avoiding it not i have no idea what the right answer is on any of the 50 questions Yep. because 10 of the questions are in there for you to get them right
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and she continued to deny it continued to deny continue to deny and i was like okay well then fine whatever explain your logic on every wrong answer because that's how you get a 70 and quite frankly you're an athlete you need the 70 to play your coach has emailed me three times if you don't get a 70 you won't be able to play the coaches are coming to look for this was a freshman who already had colleges coming to look at her for d1 track and she ended up going to track she was in the olympics a few years ago um so she's i mean high level Mm -hmm. and the ad at our school who was also the lead track person came to me and was like hey she needs to pass. I'm not sure what you have to do, but do something. Um, and so I learned, this is how you're going to do it. You're going to have to earn it. Your coach is backing me. You do have to earn it, but you have to get a 70. In order to do that, you have to explain your rationale on every answer. Well, her rationale explained getting the right answer every single question. You're and like, I was like, so so wait, with this, so you just proved it. With this rationale you've given me, you're telling me you know the answer. She said, well, yeah, I do know the answer then why would you pick the wrong one? Because I don't want people to know I'm smart. Why not? Like I had never understood it. Like from just where I grew up and the parents I had, you wanted people to know you were smart. Quite frankly, you wanted people to think you were smarter than you were. And so it was important for people to know, like me, myself, it was important for people to know I've never missed a question on a standardized test. I had a 4.0 in college. I was salutatorian in high school. I was valedictorian in college. Like that's important to me growing up that mm. people know that. I graduated college at 19. I finished with my master's degree at 21. Those are important facts in who is Showman Smith at 23. And so to hear someone say, I just didn't want people to know I was smart. I was like, I don't know. I don't get it. And so I went to our associate principal at the time, Miss Leachman, who is an incredible human. And Love I was like, you I
1: Maisie Leishman. If you're at, if you're listening to this, you made me a good teacher. You made me a good teacher because of the way that you made us stick to rubrics and data-driven <laughs> instruction.
0: Thank you, Maisie Leishman. Yeah, you and me both. You and me both. I called her after I left Lancaster, and she became my mentor teacher for like two years after I left. Um, but I went to her and was like, "Hey, why is this happening? What is what is she doing? What does she what does this mean? I've never seen this before." and she explained in the most simplest of terms kind of like you did they just she wants to be the most extreme of who she thinks she is supposed to be because that's what culture has told her in order to be a successful part of her um her system her ecosystem she has to be the best at something but what pays in her group what pays in her little society isn't being the smartest because the smartest in her society is still poor. The strongest in her society is still poor, but the dumbest person in her society gets attention and they've made money from that attention. And, and that's all she wants is money. And I, when I went home, I think I might've wrote like 20 pages in my journal legitimately 20 pages in my journal that night, from that one conversation and it changed the way i approached kids just yeah. in general but specifically it's what helped me get through that year at lancaster so what is it like for you and that's going to sound like a really bad edit i did not edit that that i really did just make a hard shift like that i'm sorry guys <laughs> um, what was it like for you at lancaster as one of a very small number of white teachers
1: for me It was, you know, it's nowhere near what it would be like to be a black person amongst a bunch of whites, but answering questions that might seem crazy normally and not treating people who are just trying to learn like they did something wrong when they ask something so dumb do white people like ice cream (laughs) sure dude like delicious but it's like you can't answer guy. guys like yeah you know we used to we used to have it in my house growing up you know but but not for me what was really important is making kids understand and and first of all it really helped because i i've always dated black women and i'm married to a black woman and i was engaged to her while i was there so i saw like oh this isn't a front like coach isn't just saying this and acting this way around us like like he found someone that he loved and she was black and that's how it worked out you know but it was it was getting them to understand too that we are different and that's okay the way you think the way you act based on how you were brought up is different than mine and that's completely okay and I and another thing that I I really emphasize to them is you I like I tried to just really focus on what you are doing, not who you are and what you're doing. And I treated everyone the same. And I think that's so important is you are ready for this. Who you are is the general perception of everyone who you interact with and what they see and their opinion is who you are to everyone else. And when you tell people that, they're like, no, I'm not, I'm this, this, and this. And well, if everyone sees this, this, and that, you're that, you're not this. While you think that you're this, your actions, which is what everyone sees and interprets, are that. So you're that instead of this. And I tried to get them to understand that for me, it was, I mean, there's always awkward times because I can't relate when it comes to experiences of, of, because like my lunch group was all black people and they all grew up in black families and they had all these cultural experiences that were common to all of them that I did not know so when they're laughing and stuff you know I like I'll laugh along I'll I'll like if it's this funny scenario I'll laugh but I didn't have that big southern Texas black many cousins barbecues family stuff like those kind of memories I didn't have that and so many of the other coaches and my coworkers did but in in a scenario like that and this was taught to me early on in my life because I got to travel and I got to experience other cultures. I got to go to Europe and see what it was like over there. I used it as a scenario not to feel awkward because I didn't have it, but it's a way to learn so that I can have a more authentic interaction with someone in the future who brings up similar content that I now understand better vicariously. I understand vicariously better than I did before so now you know a lot of times and 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 this is and this is the most important thing this is the most I think the most important thing is not adopting parts of a culture like for me black culture not adopting black culture into myself to try to fit in because that's wrong that's inauthentic is maintaining an authentic version of yourself that shows a willingness to learn and interact without trying to adopt or change to suit me, because I am me. I am not you. I can't be you. I don't want to be your culture. I want to be my version of myself that I forge through interactions with many cultures and many languages and many peoples. And people saw that authenticity. Obviously, never ever using bad language racial language which isn't a part of my vocabulary anyways but don't do that that's bad that's real bad um but just really being true to myself and not being ashamed to say or show parts of myself that are stereotypical white two-parent household upbringing that's not a bad thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's way I. It's the way I lived and a way that a lot of families seek to live, regardless of what color they have, where both parents did go to college and have good careers. My dad was a lawyer. My mom is a teacher. So I was raised in a family like yours that valued education and intelligence. And I'm not going to hide that. Right. But I'm also not going to try to be you. And I think that's what I took away from it is like, I am much younger than my coworkers. The youngest one was 30, right? And I was 23, but not as not, that's not 43. Right. But the understanding that I am just like this random white dude thrown in the mix, but I was also really good at stuff. So another thing it made me actually, you know what, that is another thing that it made me do is it made me want to show the kids. That I was so good at stuff. I was so good at basketball. I was so good at soccer. I was so smart. I could figure all this stuff out. I can build stuff. I wanted them to see that. So they respected me for what I can do. And then they're more willing to listen to what I say, because it's, it's like you were talking about earlier. Like you do have reason to invest in what I say. Like, dude, I just beat you 11 to three in one-on-one and you scored three because I started playing left-handed at 10 points and only used my left hand. I crushed you, Right. Mm-hmm. They see that, and they're like, "Damn, <laughs> it sounds bad like damn what what that, why do I do balls I'm like, Yeah, dude, I because I'm really good at basketball, man, <laughs> you know, so like all kinds of stuff all intertwined. I love Lancaster, goodness gracious, dude I love my time at
0: Lancaster. yeah, that wasn't my story i I mean, it was cool i love I like my coworkers and I love the kids at Lancaster um. Period. <laughs> Period. Um, but no, I, so Lancaster, like I said earlier, was a culture shock for me because I had, and you said something that really like resonated with me. It was trying to both understand the culture that I was moving into. And that sounds really bad as a black person right. moving into a black system, but trying to understand the culture that I was shifting to to the point where I literally moved to Lancaster for nine months and then had the money to do what most people couldn't do, break my lease and move because I didn't want to stay there anymore. They broke into my car and stole my laptop. Luckily it was my school laptop and the district just gave me a new one, but they broke into my car, my new car, because I decided I'm going to move to the hood. Y'all can't see my air quotes either, the hood and be a part of the hood system and try to learn how to be like my students so that I can understand them better. Mm -hmm. The dumbest shit I could have done because I'm not from the hood. Like I'm not, I'm from suburb Garland. Like i always, like I lived in a house, all of middle school and high school and a nice house with a pool and a basketball court. Like Mm -hmm. I'm just not from the hood. It is what it is. That's okay that doesn't make me any less black than the black students I had. But I didn't know that when I started teaching at Lancaster. So I thought, okay, I have to move and move into the hood and get my apartment that I paid for upfront. Like I paid for a year's worth of lease upfront and then paid to move out without getting any of my money back, even though I had already paid the full lease. Which again, I got a new car at Lancaster, also a bad decision. I got a new car. I kept my laptop in my car. And so when they broke in, I was like, why are they doing this? They were like, well, you're flaunting. Like, I had a student tell me, you're flaunting how much money you have, which looking back now isn't much. Like, I didn't. I mean, I worked at Lancaster. We didn't get paid a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) We um, and they haven't had many pay raises since then. And I have a lot of friends who still work in Lancaster. So if you're listening, Lancaster ISD, it's time to give your teachers raises. But that's neither here nor there. I, uh, you know, at least match the surrounding districts. But right. again, that's neither here nor there. But I didn't have a ton of money, but I had more than a lot of my students. Yeah. But then I had a lot less than a lot of some of my students because I know now. I have a lot of cousins who grew up in Lancaster. Their dad has owned his own business for as long as I've known him. They live in a nice house on acreage. They have, all of them got a car at 16 and they all graduated from Lancaster High School.
1: Yeah, and you know what? There's a ton of 3,000 square foot houses over there in Lancaster. I'll tell you that right now.
0: Yeah, a lot of them that are really nice. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to fit in with the idea, the stereotype of the student that I thought I would have just from what I remember hearing about Lancaster as a North Garland student, not actually learning from and building with the students I actually had in front of me. And so as time went on, I was only there a year, but as the year progressed and after they broke into my car, I was like, scratch this, I'm I'm not from the hood. I can't deal with hood things. I don't want to have a taped up window. I'm gonna get my window fixed and then I'm gonna buy a reserved parking space and I'm just gonna be me. I can't I can't do the hood life. It's not me. It's not who I am. And as soon as I switched from being who I thought they needed me to be or wanted me to be to who I actually was, the students responded better. the other teachers responded better. The AP I had to um, the AP that I was assigned to, he, he, he started responding to me better because I wasn't being fake. I was being authentic. I was just, look, I don't know what it's like to have to walk your brother or sister to school before. because I had a car at 15. Yep. I drove to school my sophomore year of high school in my car that no one was taking from me. I had a cell phone. We had Wi-Fi. There was never a way I couldn't do homework. And I don't apologize for that. I appreciate my parents for making sure that I had zero wants. Mm-hmm. through high school I got everything I needed for sure and like 90% of what I wanted so I don't understand your struggle I'm happy to listen to you and I'm happy to learn from you but I there's I don't I don't understand you're right I don't and that's okay and so that's that's the one thing that I took from Lancaster and it allowed me to really build when I went to my next school which was 96% Hispanic and it seems like, I mean, that's a totally different number. And when I got to that school, I had teachers. It was Carter Junior High in Arlington, for those who don't know. When I got to that school, a lot of the teachers, and I can remember three specifically Black teachers were like, you left Lancaster, where it was a lot of us to come here, where it's a lot of them. And I was like, yeah, but I I like I understand this culture. Like Everyone around me growing up was Hispanic. I get this. Like, I learned Spanish. I know, like, this is my group. I can get with this group. And it was a lot easier for me. But I'd also already learned, it's just easier to be who you are. And if, if people accept that, students, teachers, people at the grocery store, it doesn't really matter. If they accept who you are, then that's great. Life is great. If they don't, then allow them the opportunity and the space to learn from who you are and allow them the space and opportunity to learn that that's okay to accept even if it's different because different doesn't mean bad. But if you don't show people different, then they don't know different.
1: I think that's really well put. And I think it's interesting that coming from opposite ends of the racial spectrum, you and I came to such a similar realization, which shows that if you're willing to take a step back and just observe, like, smart people realize the same things, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, smart people. Smart people, and not just smart. We have a lot in common, and it's not just our intelligence level. Quite frankly, you're probably a lot smarter than I am just naturally. And I don't say that about many people, so don't expect to ever hear hear that again on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, we're both athletes who were also taught the value of education we we've played a very high level of sport but we also have a giving heart mm-hmm. and so on like I can't even speak for you my number one goal in life every day is to learn something new every day oh yeah and to learn from people and to get around people because I love people I love interaction and I think it's mostly because I love learning And the more people you know, the more different people you know, the more you can learn about things.
1: That's why I ask my son every day. I look at him, I say, what'd you learn today? And he's like, Devin, we went swimming. I was like, what'd you learn? He's like, chlorine doesn't taste good. I was like, so you learned, grew. We're sitting there outside of uh, a Cumbie's convenience store, Cumberland Farms. And he's like, can I look at the phone? I was like, no, look around. He's like, what do I look at? I was like, look at what people are dressed like out of the cars that they get. We, you know, We're sitting in some random sideline. What kind of people are getting, Like, what are they dressed in when they get out of their cars? What are they buying when they come out? What is this person doing when he steps out of the car? Learning is about learning people. What habits do they have? What do you see they're doing? Start to understand them. And then you realize that the world, that's why I, sit, that's why I love living in urban environments is there's just nonstop, people study all around you everywhere you go and that's why I try to impart in him Is I was like look learn from what you see so that when the time comes for you to interact you have background and you're not going into a blind that's education education is learning to understand everything around you and interact with it and make your life better because of it yeah
0: I've said before not on this podcast, so this is the first time I think I've ever said it publicly, but people who are from urban environments, especially people who have the ability to, I mean, and in case you didn't know, most urban environments are in cities, major cities, metropolitan type areas. So rich people come in and then they leave every day. They come in and then they leave. But when they leave, what's left is a lot of homeless people a lot of extremely poor people, and a lot of workers who have no choice but to work at certain times so that they can do other jobs during the day. And so you get the opportunity when you live in an urban area to see a ton of different types of people on multiple extreme spectrums. And so those people who grow up in that environment end up making the best leaders because they understand people the best. And they tend to be able to code switch better than everyone else. And that's one thing when I was at Lancaster, I tried to teach my students. Y'all have the ability to do something that a lot of white kids that are from suburban areas where it's 90% white, 90% middle class, and they all, all, all of the families have two parent households where one parent goes to work, the other parent is at home ready with snacks when you get home. Those people don't know how to code switch. They can talk to the people that they know and the people that are like them, but they can't talk to you. You can talk to people like you and you can talk to people like them. And quite frankly, you can talk a class above them, which they can't do because they don't have experience because rich people don't go to middle class areas. Rich people go to poor areas and take over and then they go back to their rich area. And so middle class people only are around other middle class people, whereas poor people are around rich people and poor people and middle class people who work for the rich people. And so just understanding that, that you have that ability and that your parents have that ability, that gives you a skill that you can take with you into the workforce. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be some high level executive. But if you want to work at McDonald's, it's easier to rise at McDonald's if you can understand customer complaints, but you can get ahead of customer complaints because you know the customer.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. That's a great way of putting it. And I think you're completely right. And one thing I want, I want you to think about is when you're in an urban environment and you look back in history and you look back in time, you have people who come from the slums who talk their way to the top. Yeah. that they just understand every person cuz they didn't go to school but they learned from the streets and they learned how to interact with people and they learned how to serve rich people and then they learned rich people by serving rich people and then they talked their way up yeah. you know you you reach extreme fame with an idea a talent or beauty and they have a talent for talking to people and for understanding people. And, and this sounds bad, but there's always something that you can figure out that someone wants that you can find a way to make happen to help you go up. And that's what a lot, That's another thing I try to teach my students is if you play a video game and you understand that you want this certain car in the game, but you have to do a side quest to get it, you just go and do a side quest. Dallas Fort Worth is six and a half million people with money worth of side quests. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to be good at things. You just have to do it and show up on time and you make money and you can get whatever you want. And the sooner you realize that and you're like, damn, like really, like all I have to do is just buy a power washer and spray the ground in front of people's houses and they'll give me 50 bucks. Like What? And four houses and I paid off the power washer. That's how it works, coach. I'm like, yeah, dude, literally just go buy the power washer, get three contracts and you're making 3000 bucks a month. That's it. And just getting them to understand like the system is there and it sucks so badly so many times, but learn to deal with people and get people to like you and you'll always have money for the rest of your life because people want you to work. They'll want to, they'll want to do business with you. And I, and I think that's one of the lasting educational impacts I hope to have on all my kids. My class is designed to teach kids how to learn from YouTube, how to develop a true lifelong marketable skill. I teach woodworking now. So I teach them basics of woodworking and construction, and I teach them how to learn anything from YouTube. And then the world is their oyster. They can do with it as they please. But those are the two most important skills that there ever are, is learning to make things and learning to learn.
0: That's great. So earlier you told us how you moved to Germany to play soccer. So what is it like being a professional athlete? Like what what is that experience?
1: So for me, I was working as a social worker. So I got my visa because I was doing a social year so I went over there and I worked in a school for and this was a hugely shaping factor in my life is I worked at a, a life skills school I worked with severely mentally and physically handicapped kids like the kid I was in charge had a crooked spine and couldn't move an arm and had a cleft palate cleft everything like couldn't talk so like I was 18 with this 17 year old kid in a wheelchair and they're like go change him like whoa all right feed him change him interact with him and just man i'd go from that to training with these elite athletes and i'd be like dude these kids are like they have nothing to look forward to in terms of like what we typically see as a life Mm -hmm. and i get to leave here and go ball out every single day and like Like, as a social worker, I could ride the trains around. So I just like get on the train and go random places and like find a new town, go to a new inn, like, you know, just like do random stuff. There's a million breweries over in Germany. So I just get off at a random brewery and go see what that town was like. Right. So for me, it was like, it was such a dichotomy of elite physical and mental exertion and the lowest functional level of physical and mental exertion at the same time in a very young very naive very extremely narcissistic kid and that was just the best guidance i could have had like Devin, no one cares if you're smart or not if you're not nice to a kid that you're supposed to be taking it not that no that wasn't nice to him you know but it's like no one cares that's not what's because imp- germans are straightforward man they're like your job here is to be a caretaker not to be smart you're not going to teach them algebra you're going to teach them how to interact with people you need to interact and this was just training you know but they, they very straightforward speech all the time so like that's how they talk not like that was getting scolded um but it's like this is what you have to do this is how you have to 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 interact and guide and grow them so you know like the the little battles of like dude i spent six months with or six weeks with this one kid teaching him how to tie his shoe and then timmy little timmy tied his own shoe the first time and i was like the whole world blew up Like he was so hyped like everyone in the whole school saw that he tied his shoe right and like that was his victory So to see that and then realize, like, man, I'm worried about things I should not be worried about. So every day at the beginning of training, my training now, we say hola, hola, and we say es un buen día, it's a good day. And I say, you're here, you're breathing, you can think, nothing is stopping you, but you, it's a good day. Because I saw what happens when life stops you, when nature stops you. And how frustrating it could be for them at times and, and you know that's hard when you have a kid who wants to say something and you can't speak like that's all oh, the the purest frustration i've ever seen in eyes was in this kid when he wanted to just say something and he couldn't do it so that paired with daily expectation of excellence was so interesting to me that i could just flip that switch Because I've been trained my entire life, do what you're expected to do the best you can do it. And then do another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing and have all these different interests, right? You know, be a student, be a basketball player, be a soccer player, be a golfer, be creative, learn your languages, like do all these things. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. So I was like, okay, I can do it. And I just did. But then I started to think about the why I did it. And And this was something that's really important for me. And I think that when you hear this, it's going to be something that you'll realize, too, is my existence and my identity was one of an athlete of a team athlete whose existence revolved around being on a team, being one of many who are doing the same thing, committed to the same goal and socializing with them as a team athlete. And I learned how to be on a team in Germany, which helped me to grow as like a player as an athlete. But it furthered my identity as one of many. And until I stopped playing like super competitive soccer, I didn't know what passions I had or what interested me because my existence was athlete it wasn't the next phase of teacher like teacher is a passion of mine like it's I'm very passionate about teaching I'm very passionate about woodworking I'm very passionate about archery I'm very passionate about reading I'm very passionate about video games I'm very passionate about a whole bunch of things that I didn't that were just a part of me instead of understanding like this is me and being an athlete is a part of my life so instead of being my life I found out who I was when I stopped playing which has helped me become a great coach too because it, it really centers everything around the whole idea too of like this is super important this is your life this is my life but it's only a part of your life and not being a team because you try so hard to fit in dude you try so hard to fit in with the other guys on your team and be like the way they are and try and party the way they are and and like interact with each other the way they do especially when you're a new new member to an established unit like the dudes i played with have been together for like 10 years so like trying to force myself into that mold of who they were and what they did And then in college trying to do the same thing. And then I realized, dude, like, I don't, like, I don't give a fuck about these people. They're not good dudes. They're just really good soccer players. And playing on this team is fun, but like, I don't want to act the way you act. I don't want to be a part of this, like toxic, just like crap culture of, of just partying and being like terrible humans to other people, regardless of whether we're good at it or not. And when I realized like, It isn't that important to be on a team to not be who you are. And I stopped and I found weightlifting and fitness. I was like, damn, I acted like such a fool so many times because it wasn't me, it was who the team was. And I acted like that.
0: That, you just spoke a word and I don't even know if you're religious or not but you just spoke a word to so many people who have been because that like I remember having that exact realization three different times in my life which tells you how hard it is for me to learn new lessons that is a side (laughs) note for a different podcast but the first time was in high school as a sophomore and I was the captain of my basketball team was I mean my coach didn't like me at all I was First, the same age as his son which is a whole different issue because his son went to a different school um but I was outgoing at least outwardly I was outspoken and I was born from two parents who coached basketball and played high level basketball so I knew a lot about basketball and I knew even then in 10th grade that I wanted to be a coach and so I had studied coaches I Watched, like I watched, I didn't even start playing basketball until I was in middle school or right before middle school. But I was, my mom was a coach literally my whole life and had high school teams and middle school teams my whole life. My dad moved down here in third grade and his first job was as an athletic director at the YMCA. And so he coached several teams in several sports. And so my passion at the time was learning from coaches, just sitting next to a coach on the bench, listening to how they talk to players, listening to what strategy moves they make, why they make them. So as a ninth and 10th grader, sitting next to the coach, I was like, hey, coach, why don't we try this? My freshman coach loved it. Mm. But I was only on freshman for like a week. (laughs) So, (laughs) Good, good for you. I mean, it just doesn't, it didn't last long because I was good. And so when you get to varsity, the varsity coach is the top guy in that sport at that school. And we're 6A. And he, I mean, we were a playoff team. And he was like, why are you 14-year-old child questioning me and my decision-making ability? Mm -hmm. And I was never trying to be questioning or anything like that. I just, I had a question and I asked it. It doesn't mean I'm questioning you. I'm just asking a question. Mm -hmm. And those things are different. But I couldn't communicate that as a 14-year-old. All I could say was, why are we still in a man when none of us can guard any of them? Like, why don't we just shift to a zone, use our size and athleticism, and make shit tough? And the coach was like, we play man. Okay, but we're losing by 20. So let's play something different. (laughs) (laughs) And that was offensive to him. So sophomore year, After continuing to like, obviously I learned to acquiesce and Mm -hmm. I stopped giving input and I stopped trying to share what I thought. And when I was on the court, I would do what I thought was right and it worked. And so the coach looked better. And when I was not on the court, I sat on the bench quietly and Mm -hmm. that physically hurt me. Like it was painful for me to watch other people not be successful when I knew the answer. Yes. And so when I, I decided in the middle, it was over Christmas break and my sister likes to tell the story and make it more dramatic than it was, but literally me and the coach had a disagreement right before halftime. So I decided, fine, I no longer need to play for someone who knows less than I do, especially when they are adverse to taking any type of input at all from the best player in the building. So, you know, you can have my jersey. I'm going to go do choir and theater. And I went to do choir and theater, which I thought were independent activities. I was wrong. Choir (laughs) and theater are both team sports where you have to interact with other people and, you know, do what's best for the team. But I had a theater director and a choir director who are people who want to hear from the participants. As a choir member, as a member of our vocal ensemble, when I was like, we should really add choreography to this. Let me, can. do I have permission to go home and create some choreography and bring it back tomorrow that everybody can do so that we can look like something on the stage? Why don't we add this? I know it's not in the original song, but if we add this harmony here, I think it gives a cool like originality to it. And my choir director was always like, yeah, do it, try Mm -hmm. it. It may not always work, the end answer wasn't always yes, but I had the freedom to try.
2: Yeah.
0: And in theater, I was like, well, what if I try it this way? I can remember specifically, my theater director, by the way, is now my trainer in real estate. But I can remember saying, look, I love being this character, but I think it would be better received if I did it this way. Let's try it. And he was, I, he let, he was like, OK, sure, try it today at these practices. We did the dress rehearsals. I tried it. And at the end of dress rehearsals, like, yeah, that was trash. We're going back to my way. And he was right. It was trash. And doing it his way won me an award and quite frankly made it the most memorable activity, not just role of my life, but it was the freedom to try it. And once he allowed me to try it, I was like, okay, if I've tried it. And he, he was genuinely receptive. He was giving me critiques in the me trying the new role. And he was like, well, maybe if you did it this way, it will make it better. Maybe if you did this, maybe say it like this, maybe stand like this. And then he was like, yeah, we tried it your way. it sucked. let's go back to the way I said the first time. But I was more receptive to him because he allowed me to try something different. Yeah. And just watching that happen allowed me to realize it's okay to be who you are, even within a group setting. It's okay to learn, even within a group setting. But what you can't do in a group setting, in a team setting is forget who you're supposed to be. Forget who you were created to be. Forget who you are right now, even if that's not who you're going to be. Hmm. Because there is a reason you are in this group. And if you just acquiesce and blend in and appropriate yourself to meet who everyone else is, you could be taking away from not only your own valuable experience, but from other people's valuable experiences.
1: Yes, yes. And I think another thing that goes along with it is... When you experience success. So for me, it was experiencing success athletically because everyone embodied great athletic ideals, perseverance, determination, dedication, commitment, self-sacrifice, you know, like like communicating everything all the time so that everyone succeeds on the field. To see such excellence like that and perform with that and see that like us doing everything together like this on the field is the recipe for success feeling like it had to be like that off the field was what was hard for me so I was like i don't think you got like i don't want to do what you guys are doing i want to do what i want to do um and especially like allowing situations to happen where it's like you know like i don't like, I'm smarter than you. I should be I should be telling what's going on in the court. Like, for me, it's like, I know you're wrong, and I'm smarter than y'all, but, like, whatever. We're going to do some dumb stuff anyways just because <laughs> you're my starting right mid, and you're my starting center mid, and I'm the starting goalie, so <laughs> we got to be boys. Just doing such dumb right. stuff. Dumb stuff. Luckily, not big enough mistakes to get in trouble like we talked about
0: earlier. Just big enough to learn from. Big enough to learn from, man. Yeah. Okay, so because I don't want to steal too much of your time because you are a father and a husband, I have six questions left. It sounds like okay. a lot. Five of them are quick hitters. And this is a new segment for season three. And it's called Quick But Not So Quick Hitters. Cool. Um, and then the last one is my question. And I'm going to tell it to you now so that you have time to think about it. it the last question, not the first question, the last question will be, um what is your one public servants announcement and that's any piece of advice for any group of people whether it be educators coaches professional athletes people who do woodwork white men working in black spaces whatever whatever subgroup you want um whatever generality or specificity you want to put to it just what's one piece of advice cool i like that but the first five questions are quick hitters and you can give me quick answers but you don't necessarily have to. That's why it's quick, but not so quick. (laughs) Question number one, are black women the most beautiful people on the world?
1: To me, yes, because that's the preference that
0: I've found I have personally, so yes. He's so good, he said to me, to me as well. And I was actually a full grown adult before I realized it. And that's someone who has an incredibly beautiful black mom. And I was being told that in middle school. And I was like, yeah, that's my mom. And people were telling me she's, wow. And everybody said that. And now as an adult, I'm like, yeah, my mom was really beautiful, like outstandingly beautiful. And then I look and all of the people I deem as most beautiful are black women he said right. to me yes because that's my preference what got you in this is not one of the quick hitters what got you into being just attracted to black women is that a natural i don't know because obviously i'm not
1: me mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the answer i give people like i look in the mirror and i see a blonde haired blue-eyed white man mm-hmm. i don't want to look at me and another person i i like the way that darker skin looks it looks pretty to me i like seeing contrast i like that she and I don't have the same life and the same culture. And I like that we both bring different things. And that's really important to me is learning and growing. I guess it's the theme of everything is learning and growing. And to find someone who is this picture of beauty to me and what I find beautiful and then to have new experiences attached to it is awesome.
0: So if you would have been born black, would you date white women?
1: No and and for me, it's it's that's just that's what I like to look at. And when you figure that out and you realize what you're attracted to, like, it doesn't make it doesn't mean I don't like white women. It doesn't mean I don't like Mexican women. It just means that I like the way black women look.
0: and it doesn't mean they're not beautiful. All exactly. women, there are women from every subgroup that is beautiful that are yes, beautiful. hundred percent. And there's personalities that make women more beautiful than even what their outside appearance allows them to showcase.
1: I'll agree with that 100%.
0: Okay, second quick hitter.
1: How long do you think you'll teach? I will teach two more years in public education in Texas, and I will teach in a ultra-bougie private school in England until my next step in my coaching career happens, and then I will no longer teach, although coaching, is teaching and you teach a sport and you grow kids so I'll never stop teaching so I will teach until probably about 100
0: that's super definitive you said two more years that's the part like yes we heard the rest of his life guys I'm not skipping that part I'm just going back to the two more years of public school how can you be so definitive what's the plan I
1: have My captain, I have three captains. Um, Two of them are seniors and one of them is a junior. And I've committed to this junior's development and her growth. And she has given everything I could have asked from her to me. And it's my job to see that through. And I would like to close with her leaving and me leaving because my captains are very special to me. And are people that I choose with purpose and I guide and I grow and I groom to be leaders and successful individuals. And when I put that much focus into a person and they give that back and they succeed and they're great because of it, it's a relationship. I want to keep going. And I don't want to start another relationship like that at this phase in this juncture, because then I'll feel committed to more time where I'm at. When my professional abilities and my career path is towards professional coaching game. And the longer I stay where I'm at, while I benefit individuals other than myself, it doesn't allow me to fulfill my potential. So the right time for my family, the right time for me, the right time for my
0: life is two years from now. So he just said something, and I'm only going to reiterate it because I know some of y'all missed it. And that's not saying you're dumb. It's just saying he coded it super well so that it didn't sound the way it should have sounded. And he did that on purpose. And so I'm gonna rephrase it for him. Um, He has the ability to do a lot more than what he is allowed to do as a public school coach slash teacher. And I know this because I've seen it. And even more than that, like I said, we've talked together twice. He's been the coach, girls' soccer's coach um, at a school that I taught at for a few years now. Um, I don't teach there anymore. haven't taught there in a year and a half. But there were two different stints that I was there where I had every captain on his varsity girls team. And the respect that they have from him is next level because the respect that he shows to them is next level. And he takes students and athletes that realistically don't have a shot to achieve the goals that he sets for them. And then he gives them the input for them to put in the out, for them to receive the output necessary to achieve those goals. And so what he does as a coach, what he does as a person, what he does as a mentor, what he does as a teacher, allows people successes that they couldn't have imagined before meeting him. And he can't say that about himself, because that would sound cocky and arrogant.
1: But sounds really, like the way you put that forth. I appreciate that. Those are such kind words, too.
0: But realistically, he puts in the effort. He does early mornings. He does late nights. He dreams about these students in ways that affect their lives well beyond what he will ever have a say-so in. And he's ready to do that and be compensated for it because it's a lot of work. It is. (laughs) So two more years and then you plan on moving to England?
1: Straight over to England because I have a gift. I'm a teacher and I know I I work at a bar. Um I've worked at a bar for the last 6 years where I get really really rich people that will come in from time to time. We're talking like guys who are like I was like how much like if you don't mind asking like how much do you have? And he's like look, he opens up his banking app and there's 123 commas and two digits after that second comma liquid. And you're like, whoa, okay. And you learn how to interact with rich people. And every single one, every single one of them, you have to put your foot in the door and then walk the staircase smoothly and understand that some steps take longer, but it's all about networking. And teaching is what I'm great at. And teaching is what's gonna connect me to rich people and connecting to rich people is what's going to accelerate my career along the path I wanted to go down which compensation is a huge part of it because at the peak of my career I'll be making about 20 million a year as a coach Um, that's in my late 50s early 60s Mm. but the motivation to that point is the never-ending inescapable algorithm that is soccer you can come as close to solving as you can want, but you can never do it because it's an, an it's an infinite variable, ever changing equation. And it's occupies me and it's very hard for me to stay occupied on things because I figure them out so quickly. So for me to find something that embodies teaching and relationships and, and travel and competition and dedication and perseverance and creativity and the ability to work and, and figure things out and, and, and grind your way through like every aspect of it just appeals to me so much. And then the fact that I get, I do that now, but like I get to do that and everyone gets to see it and everyone gets to see my results. And like, I, you know, it's like beginning woodworking. You start out with very simple tools and you start out with very simple woods and you learn to make beauty out of it and make the most, the absolute most out of what you have. And then, as you progress, you get fancier tools and fancier equipment, and people who know what they're doing, and people who are working under you. And then, all of a sudden, you're making something that the entire world appreciates because of the foundation that you laid. And for me, that's teaching. So I get to do what I love, which is teach and interact. But now it's a different phase and plane of existence where I'm working with 18 to 36 year olds, and I'm helping guide them through life and teaching them life and i've i like that and i like money and i'm gonna get a lot of money for doing it
0: yeah like i i hate when people are like this is my passion it doesn't matter what i make no it matters no, it, does. it, does. it, it matters.
1: definitely does
2: that's why you didn't hear me say it doesn't
0: <laughs> it matters it matters okay so we are both i mean by both title and expertise we are master teachers yes we've we've done education and we aren't old at nope. all um like neither of us are 40 we're not even close like we have a lot of years before we get to 40 we're a lot closer to 25 <laughs> than 40 i just want to make that clear exactly all we're, not old. we're not old <laughs> but we've done a lot in education we are master communicators mm-hmm. What's your favorite language that you've learned?
1: Spanish. If I had to choose one language to speak every single day for the rest of my life, it would be Spanish. If you look at my knuckles, across my knuckles, it says, por qué, with two question marks on either side. Like, that's the level to which I love Spanish. And, like, it's hard because I grew up learning French and English and German, and then Spanish came in the mix. And it was just like, you, you, when you know, you know.
0: He fell in love with Spanish, guys. (laughs) You can see it on it. Y'all can't see it on his face because it's an audio podcast, but I can see it on his face. I just assumed that the symbols on his fingers were like hieroglyphics because I don't study his hands. (laughs) So I didn't know it said porque. For those of you who don't speak Spanish, that means why Mm -hmm. Um, or even more specifically for what? Yeah, And both are great questions to ask before making a the decision. And then you
1: take off the question marks on the end and it says, "porque," Because. And that's, because. What, that's what I tell people. I'm like, when someone tells you you can't do something, you first have to ask, why? Why can't I do this? Because 99% of the time you can. They just think that you can.
0: Absolutely. So that would make two quick hitters. The third one. If you had, if not if you had, if you hit the lottery today, what would be the first thing you bought?
1: Sailboat. Where are you going? Immediately buy a sailboat. I will die sailing the seven seas. The I grew up about a hundred yards away from the ocean and the ocean is in my blood and it's very hard to be landlocked here. Um, when I get my first big pro coaching job, I will only take them in port cities and I'll buy an ultra luxury sailing yacht and I will live on the yacht. So say I get a a job in Valencia, Spain. I leave the training ground, I go to the docks and we live on a $4 million sailing boat. And then every time there's a vacation, my family and I are at a different port somewhere. Anytime I have a long weekend off, we go out sailing and we're isolated the family. So it's a way to spend time with family and escape because you know i'm going to be dealing with a whole bunch of paparazzi my whole life so like once we get out in the middle of the ocean like hey, dude you want a drone out 400 miles go for it fine sweet um but it offers a sense of seclusion and where everything to ever go to crap and the whole world goes down i'd like to be floating away from people instead of around everyone else when when guns knives and clubs come out um plus when you spend time with the ocean and on the ocean, you understand how small and insignificant you are compared to nature. And then this is the craziest thing, right? No matter where you step into the water, if it's ocean, you can go anywhere in the world. Nothing is stopping you other than preparation and planning. You can go anywhere. No one's going to stop you. And for me, like that freedom and and antiquity of exploring is what draws me. Um, If you told me tomorrow that I could start training to be an astronaut and go to Mars and I would die there and I would never see anyone ever again from the world and my family would be like compensated and they would like live a good life, I would leave tomorrow. That's how much exploring is in my blood.
0: You'd leave your family behind?
1: I would leave my family behind tomorrow. That's how obsessed I am with space. Do they know this? Yes, I've told them all <laughs> that. Absolutely, 100%. And this is assuming, you know, my kid, they give him a, million, a couple million bucks a year. But like, if I have the chance to explore, I'm an explorer at the truest sense of my being. And this is a question I asked. And this is a 2020 question. What are you? I'm an explorer of culture. And language is my tool and an explorer first. The things that make me happiest in this world are the process of going on a journey and exploring things along the way and achieving an end result that you hopefully wanted and will probably change as a result of that journey. But an explorer I am.
0: And just for the listeners who may or may not know, this is, he, actually, let me go backwards. You sound a lot like Dr. Lazardo, who wasn't a doctor when we worked with him, Mr. Oh, yeah. Lazardo to both of us, but he is a doctor now. And so I just because I, I I love him. So I I, I refer step, to step, him step. as Dr. Lazardo. Y'all sound like the same person. Like when you were saying that, I thought I was gonna sneeze, so I closed my eyes and it didn't happen. And I closed my eyes and so I was like, he sounds just like Lazardo, because I'm not saying he would leave his family and go visit Mars and die on Mars with millions of dollars but the need to know and just the growth mindset that is apparent without actually using the phrase that has become so token of growth mindset but just yeah in hearing what you're saying. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, y'all, go back to season one, episode 11. That's Dr. Remy Lazardo's episode. But it's just that insane amount of love for learning and just for exploring and growth that is super apparent when just listening to y'all talk, which is why, again, I can say you're one of the few people who has, who come on the podcast and I'm like, yeah, he's this guy is smarter than me. When he speaks, listen to him. Because I swore when you said, it doesn't matter where you are in the ocean, if you step a foot in the ocean, you said you can go anywhere in the world. What I thought you were going to say was, it's wet. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, I know where he's going. I was like, oh, wait, that's way deeper than I thought he was going to get. But it's, you're right. No matter, like, when you're in the ocean, your exploration Um, ability is unlimited Mm -hmm. you can go literally anywhere
1: including down
0: (laughs) and then he got deeper literally Yeah, get it he got deeper (laughs) (laughs) adding comedy into the podcast today quick hitter number four what do we got (laughs) quick hitter number four okay so you started teaching but you were a professional athlete first If you had to pick one career that you could have done for 50 years and sustained, which one would it be?
2: Teaching.
1: Because of the drastic demand of time and travel that athletics requires. When I'm coaching at the top of my game, I will see my family three nights a week if I'm lucky. We'll have away games where I go from, Manchester England to Moscow Russia and I'm there for a week and a half straight and I come back and then we have a five game away circuit in the south of England. So there's two and a half weeks where I've been home for six hours, you know. So the parent side of me and the and the kind of ingrained family side of me of having a great family life and understanding the benefit and how it would benefit my kids is is choosing teaching plus what I have done and where I'm at, I could work where I'm at at Bowie right now with this job and this setup. I could comfortably work this for the next 40 years. I go wood shop, wood shop, off soccer every day. And once I teach the basic skills in wood shop, while kids are independently working, I'm helping. I pursue my art and wood in terms of what I make. And I get to do that every day, and they get to see me authentically interact with what I love Mm -hmm. and that spark when you see a kid who likes it you know the spark when you see a kid who finds what they love to do like that's a little thing that guides you but it also gives you a great life rhythm so for me another thing I tell people is I've been in school every fall for the last 29 years And I've had a summer break every single year for the last 29 years. And I love that rhythm when I finished school and I just went back to school. I love school. I love being in school. You go in, you learn new stuff, you eat, you hang out with your friends, you play sports. Like it's literally the greatest thing ever. Like school isn't a job. School is, school is, (laughs) this sounds so corny. School is life. Mm -hmm. My life was built and forged around school in my education and then my life now is forged around my identity as and job as a teacher and coach and, and and mentor so school never leaves and i think that it's so special that my job is the pursuit the pursuit of knowledge the pursuit of happiness the just make people better that's my job go and make people better and be good at it But you don't have to be good at it but i want to be good at it and that's great because when you want to be good at it you're really good at it and then kids want to be good at whatever you do because they see that you care about being good at it or they care that you care about being good to them while being good at it so that they can be good at it and be good to others
0: yeah, just pause, rewind, play, pause, <laughs> rewind, play. Do that three or four times and then you'll understand. It's okay. I get it. Everyone's not an educator. But yes, yes, either be good while being good to them or be good so that they feel that they can be good, which in turn is good to them. There you go. Last quick hitter. Actually, I'm not going to hit it yet because I do have to ask. So you'll go to Mars and Mm. leave your family behind. Mm. But traveling Europe and Asia, out of the question, if you have to leave your family
1: behind. There's a (laughs) difference between separation and not exile, but true separation. Temporary, separate, temporary separation and permanent separation. It's a temporary separation because I have things that I must attend to before I may return versus this is my path. I have chosen to separate so that others may separate later temporarily because I have made the sacrifice of knowledge of permanent separation.
0: I knew a nugget
1: oh, cool. was coming with that one. That's why I asked. Yeah. It's, that's it, why when, I asked. when you can, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. I think, because that's why, is the adventure. And I don't know if I would want to go on that adventure when I found people I want to go on my adventure with here every day versus the super adventure that you know only certain ones would be willing to undertake because there is no coming back. But those are the ultimate adventures. As long as it's a purpose, hopefully.
0: <laughs> There's a Disney movie about that, I'm sure of it. I just can't think of the name right now. <laughs> Probably a few, to be completely honest. Disney does a really good job of hiding life lessons in kids' movies. Last quick hitter. Top five favorite artists of all time. And you can take artists, the word, as whatever you want.
1: Ooh, this is a good one. I choose Zlatan Ibrahimovic as my first. He's a soccer player from Sweden. (laughs) If you don't know about Zlatan, Google Zlatan. Because he turned life into art. And he turned his career into art. And I view art as purposeful creation. And goodness gracious, if he did not create everything and create... He created Zlatan. So I'll go Zlatan, number one. So
0: repeat the full name for those of us who don't
1: know it. Zlatan, (laughs) Z-L-A-T-A-N, and then Ibrahimović. But if you just type in Zlatan, he is the only Zlatan. (laughs) Okay. Number two is a guy named Paul... I want to make sure, because if if someone Googles it, um, his last name um, is Paul Sellers. Okay. So Paul Sellers is a carpenter from England who is a master of the old trade and only uses hand tools. And he is a true master of carpentry. And he is where I found my passion for woodwork, was watching him. And what he willingly put out for free content. Number three, now I'm thinking of my areas of my life sports, woodworking, music is extremely important to me.
2: For music, I would choose
1: tool. I listen to Tool of, it was 43, it's now a 49-minute playlist. My meditation is caffeine, cardio, and listening to Tool and thinking while my eyes are closed, be a stationary bike or running. Um, Tool is a, is a metal band that even after listening to it every single day for years and years and years, I still pick up new things in every single song. Um, They're very philosophical. They're very ungodly talented. Um, And there's just such an interesting counterculture with it that I don't identify with, but I'm surrounded by as in terms of my liking of them. That it's interesting to be such an extreme Tool fan, but not be so into the Tool fan life, which is cool to me. Dave Poulin is my teacher, artist of all time. He was my he was my coach in high school. He wasn't my actual coach. He was the assistant coach because his son was on my team, but he coached me in AAU, um, and he was a master of teaching kids to just give. I have never met anyone who has inspired kids to put forth more effort, humans, more effort than David Poolin, And I am who I am today because of the way that he can get you to work for the satisfaction of work and teamwork. And that's a true art to get people to become intrinsically motivated. And he makes you intrinsically motivated. And I'm gonna round out my five with.
0: Not editing out this pause. I want them to feel the anticipation that I feel.
1: Man, oh, it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. But I want to say that my last one is going to be, Kurt Vonnegut, as an English major, Kurt Vonnegut, because he shows how to take extremes and process them imagine being where he was in the war and seeing war seeing true war and being able to just write about aliens and dinner at your in-law's house and communicate ideas like that and how to take your medium writing and art and 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 noveling and and anything everything everything that he did just shows why a creative outlet matters and how important it can be to so many others even though i have like i have i'm six two i'm very tall and i have very large legs and i have a tattoo of frankenstein the size of my entire quad so we're talking he's bigger, a
0: large person. let bigger than a
1: basketball tattooed on my quad is Frankenstein, but I wouldn't choose. Actually, I take that back. I take want to get back. And I choose the book <laughs> Frankenstein. That's what I wrote my thesis on. And it's the lesson of what happens if you try to play God and you try to be, if you create, you can't take it back. And that's the deepest deepest message I ever received throughout my entire literary career was you can't meddle in things and not accept the consequences. So I I retract Kurt Vonnegut honorable mention goes to Kurt Vonnegut and the award goes to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein.
0: yeah we got we got we got a top six. But it's amazing that we got the exact same lesson from Frankenstein. I took a gothic literature class and my, it was my freshman year of college, but it was a sophomore class. And we read Frankenstein. And I, I mean, we all know Frankenstein, but not many people, surprisingly, have read Frankenstein. And when I read it, I ended up reading it twice before everyone else in our class read it once because I started reading it. And I literally couldn't stop reading it the first time. And then I was like, okay, now I can't just read it for entertainment. I have to answer the discussion questions so I can be prepared for class. And I read it again. But one question that wasn't a discussion question that I wrote down that I forced into the discussions of the discussion question was, what is the ultimate consequence of creation? because that's what i received from it because it like at that point i had just started a scholarship foundation and i wanted to be a teacher but i was also someone who wrote i thought i wanted to be a novelist i don't it takes a lot of time and it doesn't very well um but i i wrote a lot of music like i tell people all the time i said when i die my family will be allowed to release all of the music on my phone and there's like 300 songs as we currently sit on my phone that I've written and produced my but what is the reason I can't release them personally is just the consequence of putting out your thoughts and feelings and that consequence may be positive it may be negative but you don't know until you put it out correct and So the creation of Frankenstein, once you read it, it's like, this is inherently wrong. You shouldn't try to recreate people. But also you don't know that until someone's attempted to recreate people. Like, how do you know that it's bad to try to alter who we are as humans until someone has attempted to do it? And just, so what is the ultimate consequence of creation? And so just hearing you say that, I was like, yeah, me too.
1: Yeah, Me too. And then I'm very excited because my answer to your final question is so authentically true in my life the last thing i say to a student when i know i'm never gonna see them again and every single day before that when they leave me wherever it is leave my classroom leave my field whatever don't get pregnant (laughs) don't have a baby no for real no babies don't have a baby until you're ready to have a baby And it's a trick because no one's ever ready to have a baby. But you can't understand who you are. You can't. So I, I put it this way, too. So it's a dual part. One, don't have a baby until you're ready to have a baby. And two, be you before you find someone for you. Because if you base your existence and your definition of self off another person that means that you're not whole yourself and you're relying on them whereas if you find your whole version of self and someone that adds on to that instead of makes it whole you both grow instead of one growing to grow and create a bigger one so don't have a baby until you already have a baby don't get pregnant they walk out the door I say don't get pregnant have a good weekend make good choices don't get pregnant and then I'm gonna say, find you before you find your other
0: person. That's amazing advice. <laughs> that's, and it's like, when you hear it, it's like, that's not the philosophical advice. After listening to this episode, that's not what people are going to be expecting. It's not the listener. It's not what you expected. And then you got two very simple practical pieces of advice that will change your whole life if you follow them correctly. Yeah. Like it'll change your legacy if you follow them correctly. And now I have to ask what the listeners listening, what what they are asking. Did you follow your own advice?
1: I did, because I was in a position when we decided we decided to have a child we got married and we decided to have a child that financially you know wasn't great like sir but it was a situation where i could be present and i could give attention to my wife and to my child so we were ready in that regard and for me i had already gone through stopping playing and finding myself and finding my existence through weightlifting and bodybuilding and i knew how to be the absolute peak performance version of me that i found satisfying as a whole and she was someone who and this is important dude is someone who you don't have to ask permission to do things you do it and you show them respect by what you do but I shouldn't have to ask you for permission to do something if we're in a relationship and it's a reasonable thing. You're not my dad. You're not my mom. You're my wife. Or you're my girlfriend, right? Your boyfriend or whatever you choose for it to be. And for me, I didn't see the value in that until it came time where I went through a whole bunch of mental stuff that I was trying to process my way through and having someone who was strong and independent in their own right and confident in who they were as their own person help me process my way through things that i didn't know how to process through and how to feel about and their confidence in self when they spoke her confidence in herself when she spoke um set me or got me going on a path where i could feel like i could be me and figure out me and it happened because she was comfortable with who she was. I was with me. And then when it came time to be uncomfortable, we were that one. We had grown and become the bigger one. And the one helped me, the individual.
0: Relationship lessons from <laughs> Devin
1: Garrity. <laughs> and believe it or not, every alumni that comes back and I gave advice to them, like, coach, you're right. And I'm like, I know because I saw it happen a bunch of times before you. <laughs> yeah, oh,
0: relationship advice for you right there again pause rewind play in like half speed <laughs> write down what he's saying then listen to it one more time to analyze your notes and make sure you got all the words right because wow so thank you for coming on to public servants announcements this what a way to hope <laughs> in season three it's been fun
1: like truly truly enjoyable because if 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 what you're saying is true and people are listening to this because they care about what you have to say and they're invested in you, then I hope that they'll understand that the things that I say in the way that I think is guided by how people can grow. That's it. Grow every day. Grow. And they'll listen. And I hope they do. I have some good things to say
0: every now and then. <laughs> For the last two hours. <laughs> 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 another piece of advice as he leaves us this been another incredible episode of public servants announcements i say it at the end of every episode almost but i don't do this for y'all it's great y'all are wonderful listeners and i appreciate y'all listening but you know i i get more from this than most other people i'm sure (laughs) And it's incredibly fun for me to do it. That's how we even get to a season three. When things aren't fun, you start doing them and then you stop very quickly. But it's not just fun, but it's rewarding to sit and just talk to people for hours. Like me and coach Devin Garrity have known each other almost a decade now.
1: Almost a decade now, dude.
0: And we have never talked for two hours. No way. And Too, so bad, now, too.
1: too bad, too, looking back on it.
0: Yeah, because it, it seems like a wasted nine years, but to, I mean, we just get to sit and talk and listen to how, not just how I like you are with someone, but how much knowledge they have to spread. And it's crazy. And I get to do that every time I sit and open one of these Zoom meetings with someone. And so I appreciate y'all listening but it's kind of a selfish act to even record the podcast and I don't hate it so I don't blame you
1: for one bit and I really appreciate you having me on brother this was a great experience and and especially the fact that you and I were able to really reflect on how much something so simple as one year of teaching or two years of teaching can change a person forever and I like re- I like reflecting and you're you're really you guided it well you you created the podcast well like this this entire thing was very smooth and there's a reason that we're still on here these two hours later it was great you did great you did a great job thank you
0: yeah I'm good at what I do he said that's what he said it's a compliment I'm patting myself on the back he said I'm good at what I do 100% (laughs) paraphrased perfectly thank y'all for listening thank you again coach garrity for coming on to be with us continue to like subscribe share as well if you know any future guests that i should have please give them my information you can follow me on instagram twitter instagram or twitter at showman smith s-h-e-l-m-o-n-s-m-i-t-h or on facebook by just looking up Shelman smith but if you look up public servants announcements or Shelman smith on google I'm the first response every time, so I appreciate y'all again for listening. Thank y'all, and have a wonderful week. And make welcome good choices. To make good period.
1: choices. Don't get pregnant. Period.
0: Got to end it because that it's way, enough. Right? It's enough people in the world. Don't get pregnant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, brother. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you.